Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of HC of Third Culture Kid, where I, as a third culture kid, share my thoughts, experiences, and conversations. To new listeners, uh, thanks for giving me a shot, and to uh, existing listeners, welcome back. It's been a while, I haven't posted a podcast episode in probably around like three to four weeks. I'm going to talk about Roe v. Wade, what was this, three weeks ago, four weeks ago, where Roe v. Wade was overturned. I know Twitter blew up about it, and I'm just going to share my primary reaction to it, which was not great. Uh, And then I'm going to talk about uh, work a little bit, um, the resentment that I've had towards work, uh, and why I think that's building, just kind of the details of why I think that happened. Uh, We talk about uh, machine learning, um, the course I'm taking on Python. This is one of the things I want to finish before law school, because I don't think I'm going to have time to do it while I'm attending school. So I really want to finish that up. Uh, I think I have a good chance, but I'm probably, most likely, I'm probably going to finish like 80% of the course, not the full thing. But I do want to finish natural language processing because I imagine that's going to be very relevant to interpreting legal text. Um, so I'll talk about that. Uh, I'm also going to talk about uh, <laughs> my difficulties in uh, finding rent, uh, finding a rental apartment in New York. Um, I think I finally got one. But, uh, oh man, what a journey it was. And then I'll briefly talk about like selling my car and how surprised I was um, and some other shenanigans. But yeah, here we go. Roe v. Wade. As most of you know, Roe v. Wade uh, was overturned uh, three to four weeks ago. This was a Supreme Court decision many years ago that acknowledged the constitutional right for women to have abortion. Yeah, so it was, an, it was a decision in a case by the Supreme Court that then rendered an interpretation by the Supreme Court that said that the Constitution conferred the right uh, for women to have an abortion. That was overturned about three to four uh, weeks ago, and then Twitter blew up about it. And as you would imagine, um, a lot of the tweets were absolutely in one camp or the other the one camp being the pro-choice camp or the other camp being the pro-life camp. The pro-choice camp uh, decried the overturning of Roe v. Wade because uh, it uh, limited the reproductive choice of women um, to have more control over their bodies. And then the pro-life camp celebrated the Roe v. Wade overturning because it allowed for unborn children that would have been terminated uh, by an abortion to then uh, be able to be born in, into the world. So it's pro-choice or pro-life, and then a lot. It was it was like so cleanly. So much of the Twitter comments were cleanly divided between pro-choice or pro-life. Uh, the pro-choice uh, Twitter arguments would be of the strain of like you know, women's reproductive rights have taken a step back. Uh, children that uh, the women's lives are going to be destroyed because they now no longer have control of the bodies that they should. Uh, children's children are going to be born into this world where um, they're going to be in a very unhappy environment. That was uh, those were the arguments that in the comments that you would see in the pro-choice side of the camp. Usually of that strain, not acknowledging the other side, just listing all the cons that come with uh, the Roe v. Wade overturning. And the pro-life camp would go about how the children who don't deserve to die now will now live. I think that was mostly, uh, yeah, the, that, that I recall, the, this, this, the main strain of the arguments uh, coming from the pro, the life camp. 
yeah, just the language of like, you know, now children are no longer going to be killed unjustly, that sort of stuff. But I, I thought those arguments were just so one-sided and very negligent and dismissive of, and irrationally dismissive of the other side. Um, because each side, if you choose the decision to abort or not, that will then incur the consequences, which are valid, um, uh, maybe to varying degrees for some people, but which are valid to at least some degree. Uh, these consequences that will be incurred from the other camp, uh, that, list, that are listed by the other camp, if you choose to, to take a decision from one of the camps. So for example, if you choose to abort, um, the pro is, yes, you can now, you have, you're exercising some control over your body and also maintaining control over your life. Perhaps you were not ready to have a child and then also if you wanted to pursue a career, if you want to do some other things in life, then having a baby will not uh, significantly disrupt that. So you have control over that life. Uh, and perhaps that baby was unwanted. Maybe it was accidental as well. So you prevent from that um, accident from further disrupting your life from excessively disrupting your life. That's a pro of aborting. But it also does come with a consequence. That's an unborn child. Who knows what this unborn child would have been, how happy they would have been, um, what kind of impact they could have had on the world. Maybe it would have been like the next Elon Musk, who knows, or the next uh, Nelson Mandela. I don't know. Um, but you preclude that baby from coming into the world. And that's a grave consequence. And that's, a, that's when you want to make a rational decision, you have to consider the both pros and cons. But Twitter arguments were very like one-sided and one camp or the other. And so to me, it sounded very irrational because it was like only choosing to embrace the pros and then neglecting the cons. Um, and then conversely, uh, if you chose uh, not to abort, the pro is what I just mentioned, the consequence. Um, uh, it's pretty much the converse of what I mentioned earlier. It's a, a, a child that you know could have a great happy life could have a sad one who knows but we don't we don't leave that up to our hands pretty much i guess and this is i guess what's uh, also part of the um the pro life camp how it's uh us playing god and we shouldn't have the power to play god but if we choose to abort or not so they're they're saying like that, that um, removing the right to abort on a federal level like this the constitution is a is one that governs the nation, that that, uh, that, that right um, or that ability uh, is now no longer in our hands, that uh, very powerful ability. That's one of the arguments. But anyway, going back to uh, the original example I wanted to kind of expand upon, uh, if you do abort, then there's that pro. If you don't abort that, excuse me, sorry. If you don't abort, there's that pro of that life. child coming to life could lead an amazing life, could have a lot of impact in the world, and then we don't uh, play quote-unquote God. Uh, so there's that pro, which is a big pro. But the consequence is the baby might come into a life where the, the mom is not prepared to have a child. Um, the baby could have a very unhappy life. And it also disrupts the woman's life. And what, who knows what that woman could have done also in the world if she didn't have a baby at that particular time. So that's a, a grave consequence that the other camp, the pro-choice camp introduces that would be incurred by going through a decision that the pro-life um, camp advocates for. But there's there was like very little acknowledgement, I think, on... Perhaps they implicitly acknowledge this, but explicitly on those Twitter uh, Twitter stuff, the Twitter comments, there was no explicit acknowledgement. And because of that, 
omission of explicit acknowledgement on the face value of just of those Twitter comments, they seem very irrational um, and very biased, only willing to embrace the pros and not acknowledging the cons. Uh, and perhaps that's what kind of the, um, the dynamics of arguments encourage. Like if you acknowledge a weakness in your argument, then you make your argument weaker. Therefore, you're hesitant to even raise it. But to me, that's um, that that choice for strength, that inclination for strength, really compromises on the rationality of the comment. Acknowledging both sides, I think, makes the comment more rational. And I think that was sorely lacking in a lot of the Twitter uh, the Twitter comments. So. There's a lot more, I guess, to dissect in the Roe v. Wade overturning, but that was my primary reaction. Twitter comments and like the people's reactions, explicitly at least, were very one-sided, uh, ir irrational. It seemed um, to me, it would have made more sense, I guess, if a lot of the comments just acknowledge, you know, there is that pro and that con, whether you bought or not. But I believe that this uh, pro outweighs the con, um, and I side with that pro. Um, and that, that pro being valuable enough to outweigh the con. Maybe that's too much of like a, a boring, I don't know, not a boring, like a textbook argument. Uh, perhaps it doesn't need to be said. They all acknowledge that because, I mean, it's, the reason it's so controversial is because of these both of these pros and cons, because they're so weighty and they each have the weight. And really what the, uh, yeah, I think the really what the camp should be divided between is not like, even the words pro-choice and pro-life are very one-sided. They don't like, it only acknowledges the pros of each of the camps, of each of the um, decisions that you would make, whether you abort or not. So that even that's maybe a misnomer. But I feel like the argument should have been about the relative weights of each of the pros and cons of abortion or not. Yeah. And that was lacking. Anyway, that was my, those were my thoughts um, about the discussion that I was seeing on Roe v. Wade on Twitter. Uh, now on to work, some more personal stuff. So there's been a bigger push in my company to return to uh, the office. Uh, that means more in-person stuff, especially in-person meetings. And as I was in, in uh, some in-person meetings, I just, I, I came or uh, I arrived at the conclusion slash lesson that I think in-person meetings are, uh, in terms of trying to achieve a goal that you set out uh, for that meeting, in-person meetings are less productive than remote uh, meetings. Uh, you know, there's discussion about like how working from home might actually increase individual productivity, which I, which I think is true. But my point really is just for the meetings and even the meetings, in-person meetings are actually less productive than remote meetings. And here's why. Uh, just like we do with physical energy, there's, I think, a limited amount of mental resource we can allocate in a given amount of time. I, it's, that's the whole premise behind multitasking. You, If you do multiple tasks at one time, you're going to split your mental resources and your mental intention across different tasks, and you may not uh, be as optimal. Maybe you will or not, but less likely to be as optimal in a particular task if you were just focusing on it solely. Uh, rather than multitasking. And I think that's what you do in in-person meeting. Specifically, you have to exercise more social skills and listen to social cues more in in-person meetings. And these are distractions to really focusing on the task at hand. While I'm giving out a message and communicating with somebody else, I have 
I maybe I'm just not natural at this, but I have to think about maintaining eye contact. I have to look at that person. If that person doesn't seem comfortable looking at me in my eye contact, I might have to uh, respond to that and look away a little bit. Uh, and then I have to look at their body language. I have to pay attention to the body language a little bit more. Maybe you should already be doing these remote meetings, but that those cues are much more visible in an in-person meeting. Your whole body, the whole body of the person is visible compared to remote meetings you want you only see really the head and shoulders um, so there's a lot more sensory cues to take in in an in-person meeting and to interpret and those almost by definition of having limited mental resources are going to distract uh, away from your ability to pay attention as much to the task at hand which may be like making a decision um, aligning on a disagreement uh, so yeah, that's a that's kind of the experience that I went through, and then that experience I thought supported that that conclusion that I had. That really, in person meetings, they require more in things that are not directly relevant to the task, like responding to social cues, exercising your social skills, that take away from your attention and more mental resources to just focus on the task at hand. In a remote meeting, like you could hop on a screen. While you're having the meeting, you don't really need to look at the person, but you can look at another document that uh, that will help you with like citing some facts that might support your stance or some support some other, somebody else's stance or certain decision. And then you can also be less mindful of kind of your body posture. Um, like you could, for me, when I think like rapidly um, and I have to think fast, I, I do something with my like, fingers um, or I fidget with my fingers a little bit uh, but I'm less conscious of that in a remote meeting because they can't see it versus like an in-person meeting um, where like when you when you get when you go to courses about like public presentation they talk about like body language how to control your body like how to like move back and forth with eye contact um, with, with a person like you maintain eye contact with a person and then with one person in a room full of people, and then when you finish the sentence, then you move on. Like, there are so many of these other like social cues that you have to be pay attention to, but in a room that you don't really have to in a, in a remote meeting. I don't have to move from eye to eye to a different panel on my screen while I'm speaking. I could just look ahead uh, blankly, and sometimes when I'm thinking, I don't even look at a person. Like I will stare off into like nothingness and think think about my thoughts deeply. And because and that that just that description of that scenario itself is me acknowledging that I really get into thinking about the topic that I'm discussing while I'm in a remote meeting. Um, so yeah, less in a remote meeting, uh, don't have to really think about body language. I can just let my mind, my body react to how it's going to react as I'm unfolding and uh, sharing my thoughts on the topic or even listening to somebody. I can. If it's something really complicated, maybe I'll really focus in on it, and then that's all I'll focus on, and then I'll, my body may react to it. I may fidget, uh, I may stare off a little bit, look back and forth um, around my room, uh, but in an in-person meeting, you you or your maybe this is an artificial pressure, but you, I feel a certain pressure to pay attention more to my body language, more so than I would in an in-person uh, remote meeting, because my communication comes with uh, whatever the, per the the audience member or uh, the person I'm, I'm, I'm in the meeting with is seeing. My communication, my body language is part of my communication, so I have to be cognizant of that. 
more cognizant of other things that are than the than topic at hand distract me by definition from the topic at hand. Yeah, so that's what I, uh, those are some details of my observation, which leads me to like the conclusion slash assertion that in-person meetings are less productive at dealing with the primary topic at hand than remote meetings. All right, resentment's destructive elements. That's kind of the, that, that was a poor way to put it. But basically, uh, I don't think I feel it as much, especially since I've established more of my work-life balance. I'm back. But there was a period of time in the past four weeks, maybe a week or so, where I was working overtime to try to meet a deadline. And because of that, I got grew more and more resentful of work. Now, if um, there are certain circumstances, I think, even though I was working overtime, where I would not feel as resentful, but I won't get into it now. Maybe in another podcast, I'll elaborate on these circumstances that would have been more favorable for me to feel more okay with working overtime. But now is not the podcast. But anyway, while I was working overtime, I was working, being feeling more resentful. And here was a cycle. I think there are like a few stages that I can break it down to that really led to increasing resentment. But how it starts is, you know, you uh, working on a task that um, maybe I wasn't even working overtime. It was just something that, yeah, I was working overtime, but it was not necessarily to meet a deadline. No, screw it. No, it was to meet a deadline, but the causes, the causes um, different from what I initially thought. Anyway, anyway, so, all right, step back. Let me break down the, the cycle, the stage of the cycle that led to increasing work resentment. I start my day. Uh, working on a task, but I don't find it too entertaining. So because I don't find it too entertaining, I don't find it as engaging, and therefore I'm not as productive at the task at hand. But I do have to finish the task. So maybe by the time um, work hours end, uh, 6 p.m. or 5 p.m., I'm not where I really need to be on this particular task uh, to be on track to meet the deadline. So screw it, I work a little bit more past my work hours um, because I'm not as engaged. Already, I'm already bored with this work, but I'm still pushing myself through it. So I am fighting an uphill battle here uh, already with my in my in uh, regarding my morale. Uh, and then I finish. Now, although the task may not have been like super arduous and straining, I am mentally a little bit tired because I worked on a boring task uh, for such a long time. I also want to say, as a, this is a random thought that just popped into my head, um, this phenomenon, I think, I've, I've heard, um, this phenomenon of boredom and ennui affecting optimal performance. Um, and I don't know if it, you know, I'm t I don't think this affected my performance because I will be diligent in my work. Um, so if it means that I have to slow down to be diligent in my work, I will do it, which is what I think I was doing. But... Uh, this observation of how boredom and fatigue and other psychological elements affecting performance of the work, that's, there's probably a lot of, uh, lot of studies on this. I think I read something about like a judge, um, how their decisions may be affected. And these judges do a very uh, important job of deciding on cases that are going to impact people's lives directly. So it's super important job. But how, whether they have a lunch break or not, or if it's before lunch break or not, affects their decision making, how they would have decided one way or the other. You can look that up in Google. I'm not entirely sure um, of the details there. Um, 
But it's one example of how psychological factors are indeed important and it's almost inevitable to expect a human being to perform um, at an optimal capacity regardless of environmental conditions is environmental yeah in regards to environmental conditions or even the psychological conditions is unrealistic and something we shouldn't aspire to in my opinion just not we were yeah we humans are doing important tasks so we must also accommodate the conditions of how we as human beings um operate instead of having yeah instead of forcing upon expectations um that are not characteristic of human beings. Anyway, that was a digression. Uh, going back to the work was admin. So I finished my work, uh, but uh, I'm a little bit past hours because I I wasn't as far along as I would have, but now I'm tired and by the end of the day because I was doing a boring task for or task that I'm not very engaged with for long hours. Uh, but then there's also some other things I want to do during the day. Like um, maybe I want to do this podcast uh, maybe I want to take that machine learning course. So I do that, but I delayed procrastinating a little bit because I wanted a little bit of time, you know, because I was tired. Um, but I do that maybe like at 11 PM, but that kind of cuts into, um, so I sleep around one, but then I have to wake up at like eight or before, uh, because I have meeting. Um, but then I have this reduced sleep cycle. So now I'm a little bit, little bit grumpier and I still have to work at that task because I still, I, you know, that's it was a big task. And I have a deadline to meet, um, but it's still boring. So I'm now grumpier and I'm still working on that boring task. So maybe I'm not as productive again, or maybe this time I do meet the deadline, but uh, this is my second day of doing that um, not as engaging task and I'm a little grumpier. So now my mind is a little bit affected. Uh, it's, it's, it's not feeling comfortable as much. Um, and I'm like, oh, I don't want to. And my thoughts are like, oh, I don't want to. I schedule on the second day. I schedule time again to do either this machine learning course or whatever, maybe the podcast. Uh, but I'm I'm just I don't want to do it because I'm tired now, um, as I was starting from yesterday. But if I don't do it, then I feel like I'm acknowledging that my work has now is like controlling my life and is depriving me of opportunities that I really enjoy. So to combat that, I do what I scheduled it originally. But now that task now feels like a responsibility I had to do and not one I wanted to do. So that doesn't feel great. And then this repeats on for many days until like you feel worse and worse. And then the attribution, I, I, I attribute me feeling this way due to my work. Uh, due to me being locked into a schedule of you know, contributing at least eight hours to a task that I don't necessarily like. So this resentment towards work builds. Um, and I feel resentful towards work. Uh, that is one scenario. I imagine in a different world with different uh, things that are happening, I might have not felt that way, but that is how I felt. And that's kind of how uh, I built them some resentment towards work over some time. Um, but now it's better. You know, I'm not working that uh, those long hours. Uh, yeah, I, may, I don't know. Was I working maybe 60 to 80 hours? Certainly possible. Yeah, but definitely not doing that anymore this time around yet, uh, most recently. So I'm not as resentful. Yeah. I think that sort of uh, experience really uh, had reminded me of 
and may, my recollection of this may be imperfect, but I did read some sections on, on Marx, Marx's, uh, what's that? Uh, I don't know, whatever, whatever his flagship work is. Um, shoot, you know what? I, that's bothering me, so I'm gonna look it up. Marx, Karl Marx work. Das Kapital, and pronunciation was part of the title. What is, what was Karl Marx? The Communist, I don't think I read the Communist Manifesto. Anyway, there was this political science book that had like sections um, of, from original works from very important political ideolo ideologists, including Adam Smith on capitalism. Um, can we call capitalism political ideology or is it more of an economic ideology or maybe it's really both? Maybe that dichotomy isn't perfect. Anyway, I read that textbook uh, when I was in school and I remember Karl Marx's uh, Karl Marx's work was on it, different, uh, just a snippet of um, one of his works. I think probably a snippet that really summarizes his work. And then his work talked about many things, but one of the things it talked about was how work can be alienating. How just going on about your work, if I recall correctly, it was an example of somebody working in a factory doing just repetitive tasks, and that how could be alien, alienating to the working class and to the individual. And that's kind of the experience I think I went through uh, while I was going through this cycle that fostered and fomented work uh, resentment towards work me doing work that i wasn't like quite uh engaged with and then it alienated me from the things i did enjoy doing that that spoke more to my identity um and that's the sort of the alienation i'm feeling and i, and I think that's um I, when I, at the time when i read it that was one of the um one of the reasons that supported in Marx's argument for a move away against, um, well, is it, was it, no, no, it wasn't privatization of property. Uh, yeah, his argument, it's contributed to his arguments of communism. But like I said, I can imagine a world very realistically, and I have experienced before, where I would not feel as resentful towards work, even though I was working overtime, where work wouldn't be alienating, even though I poured my soul into it. Um, all this to say, uh, not all this to say, but this is this all. I think this is to say, partially that uh, Karl Marx's characterization of work and how it's alienating is only one of many possible aspects and experiences of work. Therefore, it's not an absolute like airtight argument, in my opinion. Um, all right, so that's on work. Uh, another thing I am. Um, I'm doing and have done is taking this machine learning course on Python. Um, it's a it's a course I'm taking on Udemy, and I am enjoying it quite a bit. I think it's super valuable. Uh, I think everyone who wants to and can take it uh, should take it because it's so in many ways it's so accessible. What it does give you uh, is this ability to predict future events um, with maybe with not a perfect ability because you will get some errors, but to a high rate, uh, to a high accuracy rate, um, you, you, you're given the tools to try to predict future events. And that would be so valuable uh, across so many different functions in so many different companies. Even though you don't know the theory to machine learning, what this course is teaching me um, or what I'm realizing through this course is that you don't have to know the theory to apply it uh, and to do it successfully because 
in Python, there's a lot of prepackaged libraries, meaning there are um, code that other people have written that can be usable in different contexts so that you don't have to rewrite that code from scratch. And that code then can provide you with the prediction models for machine learning that you can then use, fit it to your data, and then make predictions. And you don't have to code that from scratch. And that's the power of these libraries in Python. Um, and that's what makes it accessible. So I don't really have to understand theory. Somebody else who really understood theory wrote those packages, which I can retrieve. And then I can, I can uh, apply those uh, models and then I can evaluate those models myself. There's again, another set of package, uh, package in Python that helps you evaluate that I, even though I don't understand the theory, somebody that didn't understand the theory wrote so that I can retrieve that and evaluate my model. And just, and that, those, that pair where you can get a, a fitted model to your data, uh, of, of uh, a fitted model to your data so they can produce predictions. And then this other component that allows you to evaluate your model to see how well your model is running. Those two in combination just give you the ability, me the ability to use machine learning, even though I don't really understand it to, I think a successful uh, degree. Uh, let me go into this a little bit more in detail. Let's say, so at least in this, in this uh, Python course that I'm taking, they give you um, add data. For example, they give you, I don't know if it's real or not, uh, whatever it is, they give you a set of data that for each row lists a bunch of characteristics of the people that either clicked on the advertisement in a website or did not click on an advertisement. So the age, um, time they spent on the website, all, the, all these other, uh, all these characteristics. And this is part of my logistic regression model, uh, module. Logistic regression is, uh, at least in this course, maybe there's some other variations, but at least in this course, they described it as a classification model where it'll take a bunch of inputs. It could be categorical inputs like male, uh, female, like gender classifications, and then numerical uh, features and numerical data to then predict whether that um, item with all those characteristics uh, will either be classified into one bucket or another, yes or no. Yes, click on data, no, click on data. So logistic regression will, based on a set of features, predict uh, whether a certain item fall would fall into one category or another. Uh, at least in my module, there's only two, ex two, um, two categories, but I think there can be more than two categories. Anyway, uh, going back to uh, the data set uh, and the examples that I was talking about. Um, so yes, I was working with this ad uh, data set that had a bunch of features and then in that same row would say whether that person clicked that person with this, that, that, that those features would either click on the ad or would not click on the ad. Um, so I would get that data and using that data, I won't go into too much detail, but using that data, I would fit a model um, that would predict uh, using that that history of people who have clicked on the ad and then create a producer model that for any new entry that I put into it would predict whether that uh, other that new person that I'm trying to predict for or that new set of people that I'm trying to predict for whether they click on the ad data or not would then click on the ad data or not it will give me a set of predictions whether this person that's like 35 years old spends this much time on, on, on the website and these other features would click on the ad data or not. Uh, and I can do that with like what, five or six lines of code because again, there are libraries that I've already written that 
underlying code for it. Um, so give me these predictions. Now, how do I know if these predictions are 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 um, are good or not? Actually, that's probably not the best question to ask. How do I know if the model that I fitted is really good or not? Now, you need to know a little bit of the theory, um, but what uh, that other package does is that it helps you evaluate your model. You maybe you can come up with a model, but uh, you. Yeah, you come up with a model and then you want to evaluate it. It will tell you if this model has this level of precision, this level of accuracy, and maybe some other metrics. But the higher those metrics are, and the maximum that I can each of those metrics can go to is like 100%. So if it's like a 90% or above, it's, it's pretty good, right? Uh, so that's all you would you need to know if your model is successful, is, is good or not, is effective or not. Get a model. If the metrics tell you it, it is working at a high level and at an effective high level, then you're good. Then you can use that model. You have built yourself a model that metrics are telling you and evaluation is telling you is effective. So why not use it, even though you don't understand the theory behind it? What I kind of uh, compare this to is like shooting a basketball with like terrible form. Uh, perhaps you don't know the mechanics of shooting a basketball but you shoot it and it goes in 100% of the time. Are you really going to try to understand the theory and the mechanics of shooting a basketball? Are you, if the, if the, if the shot goes in 100% of the time or 90% of the time, that's an effective shot. You don't have to understand the mechanics of shooting a basketball. That's an effective shot and you stick with it. That's kind of how I compare um, the ability to use machine learning without really understanding theory too. And effectively, this allows you to just, even though you don't understand theory, this allows you to just go through trial and error to try to make the best model. Um, yeah, try to use the best machine learning model. Um, the higher the precision recall on these other metrics, the better the model. Uh, let's, you have to put in some parameters maybe for the model, so you can tweak the parameters a little bit to get the uh, higher, uh, higher evaluation metrics for that model. Um, and you'll have some theory to kind of work with it, but you don't really have to understand the theory that much in depth to tweak the parameters, I guess, in a more in an informed uh, matter. And that's okay, because as long as you know um, how to evaluate the model, then you have a basis, an adequate basis to evaluate whether that model, that prediction model is working for you or not without even understanding the theory. Python is to me the Robin Hood of uh, machine learning. It makes it accessible to folks, even though you don't really understand investing slash machine learning. And I think this really, if it's not already the, the present, it should uh, be the very imi imminent future of several functions, um, I think, in a company. Like, who would not want the ability to become a modern-day prophet? That's what machine learning does. Not Also, who would not want, but why would you pass up the opportunity or why would you pass up the value that you could obtain from being this modern day prophet, if it's accessible, that would be an unwise and stupid decision, in my opinion. So uh, yeah, so this this is uh, kind of the thoughts I had about as I was taking this machine learning course. Perhaps I am, uh, because I'm not a machine learning engineer by training, maybe I'm like, these statements that I'm making are very rudimentary and dismissible, because perhaps I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. But until then, I truly believe there are even at least some basic applications of machine learning uh, that would be very useful 
um, in many functions, in many companies. I mean, I can even go maybe say like maybe every company. Sales probably can uh, benefit from this. Operations can probably benefit from this. Uh, what else? Security companies, security functions can obviously benefit from this. Um, legal, maybe legal, and this is kind of where I'm interested in, maybe legal companies uh, can benefit from this, whether something would pose a legal risk or not. Um, yeah, there's so many functions. Like sales, clearly an easy one. Like I do with the example that I told you about ad data, whether someone's going to click on ad data or not, it's definitely it's going to impact sales, right? Because that's advertisements. That's that's a sales concept. Uh, so yeah, I just I just don't see how even knowing some machine learning and applying it, even though you're not uh, like a machine learning engineer by training, how that would how using such how using um, machine learning when it's accessible will not be able to help uh, in almost every business or almost every function in a company to an extent. Yeah, I could go on and on um, as I swim through my as my thoughts about this swim a little bit, but I hope to finish this course before I start law school. Uh, but already, I've, I think I've learned um, about how to apply three machine learning models, uh, three prediction models, and that's linear regression, which uh, will give me, um, which predict the value, a continuous variable value. So like, um, that's different from like a binary classification of like zero or one. Um, and then I learned, I think I know how to, I know how to do, I think, logistic regression. I also know how to do K nearest neighbors. Um, and K nearest neighbors, to summarize is like its prediction model is based on uh, finding it will predict whether a data set will be will be classified into one category or a category or another category based on its distance from the data set that you provided the model to be trained on um, so based on the distance from data points on the data set that you fed the model to be trained on. Um, I could probably go into detail about this, but I don't know if I want to digress too much. Anyway, share some takeaways. Uh, so I'll just move on from machine learning. Next up, New York renting. Uh, oh man, this was uh, so, so difficult. Uh, New York renting is very different and it's more challenging, I think, than, than renting has been in California. I had to be a little bit more aggressive to even get a response from, uh, not the realtor even, but the broker. So there's a middle person in many uh, rentals that I've been uh, trying to look for, where a broker will uh, list the listings from the landlord, and then I have to pay the broker a fee once I do um, sign my lease and everything. Yeah, those will be part of the moving costs. There are broker fees associated with securing a rental. And that was also very different from California rentals because I didn't have to pay like a 15% of annual rent to then be able to sign the lease and get the apartment. That makes it so much more expensive. So that's why the broker's fee has not been pleasant in my search for rentals in New York. Another one, another difference is that I had to be a little bit more aggressive because as I, as I said this, I digress, but this was an earlier point I wanted to make. Uh, you have to be a little bit more, you have to be a little bit more aggressive to even get a response from the broker. Um, I had to like upfront share my salary and some other information to show that I'm serious and that I'm capable uh, of paying the rent. 
uh, apartments. And then the, the reason I would do that, which leads me to a, a third challenging aspect of the New York rentals, was that rentals would kind of disappear within like, especially good ones, within two to three days of it being listed. Like by the time um, I reached out to many of the brokers to see if the apartment was available, it was already sold, uh, not sold, it was already rented out. So that has been very difficult. Um, I've used, um, now those are the challenges. Now how I navigated those challenges, like I said, one was me being more aggressive, like from the get go, when I would communicate with a broker, I would share my salary, think about sharing your credit score, um, with your moving date to share all this information. So that facilitates the broker in weeding out the viable candidates from the less viable candidates, I guess, um, in, in uh, renting the space out. Another tip is I used a uh, street easy. I'm used to using like Facebook Marketplace and Craigslist uh, for California rentals, but I hear, I heard that Street Easy worked for New York rentals and it had has been pretty helpful. So StreetEasy.com is a resource I turn to. Um, don't be afraid to call or uh, email the brokers directly um, once you see a listing that you you like and you want to hear more about. Um, yeah, I think those are some tips. Uh, I think I found a New York apartment right now. Uh, so, you know, the, I think the, the process hopefully will conclude in a great way for me. And then, uh, last but not least selling my car. Uh, if you're selling a used car, now might not be a bad time to sell your used car because I was very, very surprised by the price that my Honda used car of eight years was going for. I think I bought the car uh, for around like $18,000, $19,000 back in like 2014. And my used car price, which I was able to confirm with the dealership uh, because that was the offer I got, was uh, $14,700, which is not bad at all, which means I was able to use my Honda car for like $5,000 less, $3,000, $4,000 over eight years. And that to me is a bargain. Um, but the reasons, um, I, I looked online and I think I heard this from a dealer. The reason these used cars are commanding, uh, high prices is because this, uh, the supply of cars, especially Honda cars is low now. So because the supply is low, um, we're more, the Honda cars are more valuable. Uh, so that's why I think I was able to command that's a uh, high of a price for my used car. Um. So that's why I say now might be the time to sell a used car, especially if you have like a Honda or a Toyota, uh, because these cars last for so long. That's why even if they're used, they still retain a lot of the value and even more so in a climate where supply of these cars is low, at least Honda cars. I don't know about Toyota. Um, so that's my experience, but it's some lessons and takeaways that I guess I can share about uh, this uh, selling my car is uh, how I did it was I used, um, I went online to assess and appraise the value of my car. It asks you to list like information about your car, uh, some details, mileage, how old, um, some damage. And you input all those details and I wanted to appraise my, the value of my car. So I used Kelly Blue Book. Uh, I think CarMax has another website. And CarMax is another retailer, I think, or a company that specifically like buys and sells used cars. So that was another merchant I could have sold, sold my car to. Maybe I will go ahead um, and sell my car to that. So I haven't sold my car yet, but I just uh, wanted to see what it, what, what kind of value it would command. And I went directly went to dealerships to kind of uh, assess that and get offers. Uh, 
And yeah, so I used I appraised the value of my car, and then from there it gave me a list of, um, it gave me a list of dealers that I could take my car to, and then some other merchants that I could take my car to. Um, and then from there, I just got a bunch of calls because <laughs> they will pass along your contact information. These websites will pass along your contact information to these other dealers. And then I just picked a few and decided to go visit them, see what they offered. Uh, I was a little uncomfortable with how they uh, inspected my car because they were uh, when I went to the dealers, they didn't like walk me through of, like how they're inspecting my car. They just took my keys and like just went about inspecting it without walking me through it um, as if... Uh, yeah, it wasn't my car. Like what they, I, I, yeah, they were just solely focused on like, okay, what does this car bring to me? But instead of, um, showing too much courtesy to the seller, so be mindful of that a little bit. Um, it, and my experience of trying to sell my car is based on my experience here in California. So this might not be your experience, depending on where you might be selling your car. But yeah. Um, I was, yeah, they just, I, when they took my car for a test drive, I'm, I was thinking, wait, do I need to, uh, have this person like sign a contract saying that they would reimburse me for any damage? Uh, but I didn't, I just asked a question like, oh, please be careful with my car. You know, do you guys have like, a, a insurance for any damage with them uh, that would be incurred on my car because of your test driving? And they said yes, but I didn't ask for like any paper documentation, but still I was a little like wary. My car came out fine. Um, I guess the dealerships do know what they're doing, but just, uh, if you're uncomfortable with like, to giving some temporary ownership, um, of your car to a stranger, that might be part of the experience of trying to sell a used car. So especially in a dealership, definitely would probably would not do that to like some random person I'm trying to um, sell my car to some private person. That's not our dealership, but to a dealership, I was more comfortable, but still uncomfortable with, uh, with how in the inspection process, how I thought it could be a little invasive on my car. Um, what was I talking? Oh yeah, so yeah, I went to the dealerships, got a, got some offers, uh, and that was the process. I didn't go through with the entire thing. I imagined like if I went through the, if I said yes to the offer, they would have just given me a check or something or wired me some money. And then from there, I would have to present some documents and also give it to them, like my title of my car uh, to then finalize uh, the sale and to make sure that the sale, the ownership of my car passes over to the dealer. Uh, but that's broadly kind of my experience. Um, but make sure you look up the value of your car online because that's going to help you give like a benchmark of how you want to negotiate the price of your car, how far you want to negotiate the price of your car. I was surprised by, I went to two dealers actually. I was surprised by the range of the price they offered. Like one offered me like 8800 um, for the car and the other offered me 14,000. Um, so that was a huge range of, of prices, uh, that I was offered. And I guess the takeaway here is go to a few dealers until you find an offer that you are satisfied with because you might be offered a range. It's the, the offers will not be consistent across dealers and, and you shouldn't expect it to be consistent across dealers. That was my takeaway. All right. I think uh, that's um, that's that's it for this podcast. To share there are a lot of things that went on in the past four weeks. There's uh, a lot of other things that went on, I think, but these are some of the highlights. All right, uh, thanks for listening, and I'll see you guys later. <laughs>